First John chapter three and Isaiah 14 is our side trip this morning. You all ready? Okay, I'm going to begin this morning with a dirty word. So a word that society looks down upon. You never, ever hear it in polite company these days. You guys ready? Some of you have never been this interested in church before. (laughs) Here's the word. Sin. There, I said it. We we don't like to use that word, do we? (laughs) Especially in the sentences with words like me and mine. Maybe you and yours. Or them and theirs, but not me and mine. Sin is a dirty word in today's society, right? We prefer to use words like mistakes or my shortcomings or sickness or weakness. Right. I've just got a, I've got a weakness. I've got the sickness. We we prefer to use uh, the words like bad choices, poor decisions. In our PC world, we are no longer sinners. Right. We would sing that song, the rescue for the morally challenged. Well, the Apostle John has no such problem with that word. None at all. <clears throat> you guys want to participate this morning? You have learned well. You have no choice. So. This time, you guys get to say the word sin whenever we come to it in our text. And you are going to be busy bees. Here we go. First John chapter three, verse four. Whoever commits also commits lawlessness and is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our and in him. There is no whoever abides in him does not whoever has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who is of the devil. For the devil has from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not. For his seed remains in him and he cannot. Because he has been born of God. Ten times in these six verses, John made you say that dirty word. Any guesses what this portion of Scripture might be about? Sin. Real quick review. <clears throat> you guys might be sick of this, but this is the way we learn through repetition. John has written this uh, epistle with four explicit reasons that he spelled out for us very clearly. Chapter one, verse four, he writes this, that we might be filled with joy. Chapter two, verse one, he writes this, that we might be free from. There it is. Chapter two, verse 26, he writes this, that we might be able to fend off deception. And chapter five, verse 13, he writes that we might have a firm assurance of our salvation. So we, we, have found that all the messages have fit into this grid somewhere. Today, the message, of course, would be all about, we would look at chapter 2, verse 1, and say, okay, this is all about being free from sin, and that is true. But I think that John's real motivation uh, with these verses is actually more like that third one on the list. Chapter 2, verse 26, we write this to you that you might be able to fend off deception. See, we've spoken about it before. There were... A group of deceivers, they were called Gnostics, those with secret knowledge. 
group of deceivers who were wolves in sheep's clothing, right? They were going around spreading bad doctrine. And one of their heresies went like this. Look, because all of the physical world, all physical material is evil, which is a false assumption. Therefore, our bodies, our physical bodies by themselves are evil. False assumption. It says, and because of that, you can think two ways. This was the, the Gnostics. They divided into two camps. One was asceticism, right? Uh, the body's evil, all of it. So we're, we're going to beat our bodies into submission and we're going to physically abuse ourselves um, to show our bodies who are boss. Okay. That was one thing. The, the verses that we're looking at this morning, it was more like the second camp, which was this. Look, because our physical bodies are made of this physical material and it's all evil, God has figured out a way that our spirits can be right with God independent of our actions and our bodies. It was called antinomianism. I said it right the first time. Antinomianism. It was basically the Christian version of Epicureanism. Does that clear it up for some of you? <laughs> Epicureanism. This was basically, let me explain this. This would be the philosophy, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Right? Nothing, there's nothing in the right beyond that you have to worry about. Right? Just might as well party. Uh, this was summed up again by that great theologian, the artist formerly known as the artist formerly known as Prince. That song, you're like, I don't, I don't even know that song. Well, I do. Back in my, uh, my heathen days. Uh, the, the song about it's going to be the year 2000, and so 1999, you might as well party it up, right? That is Epicureanism. Thank you. Which is, look, eat, drink, be merry. Just go for it because tomorrow we die and there's nothing left. Okay, that's Epicureanism. Here's antinomianism. It is the Christian version of that. Which is, look, eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow we go to heaven because God's got it all worked out for us apart from what we do. Basically, antinomianism looks at sin and says, that's no big deal. Christ paid for it. Live it up. See, the, the pivotal words in our text this morning, I think you're going to find that bring all of this into perspective are at the beginning of verse 7. He's speaking, I, I have no doubt, he's speaking of this heresy of the Gnostics, antinomianism, when he says, little children, let no one deceive you. Saying, look, don't let anybody fool you about sin. It's source. What it really is. What it says to God. What it costs the Savior. And what it says about the sinner. If you had to put it in just a few words, you could summarize this text. Sin is a big deal. So today we are going to study all about sin. No, we're not going to learn how to do it. We're experts at that, unfortunately, already. But if you're taking an outline, uh, verse 4, we're going to see sin at its core. Verses 5, and then I think it's the end of verse 8. We're going to see sin and the Christ, that is, sin and its relationship to Jesus. Verses 6 through 8, we're going to see sin and the counterfeit Christian. 
And then in verse 9, we're going to see sin and the child of God. Sin at its core, sin in the Christ, sin in the counterfeit Christian, and sin and the child of God. Okay, let's begin. Sin at its core. Look at verse 4. First John chapter 3, verse 4 says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. John begins right away and says, look, sin is a big deal. Verse 4 is a look at sin at its core. Lawlessness, it means to have contempt and violate the law. It means to have an utter disregard for the rule of law and therefore an utter disregard for whoever made that law. Right? When you and I sin, John says we are outlaws. And I, I wrote that down and I'm like, you know what? Even that doesn't sink in. Outlaws. I think it's because we've romanticized the notion of outlaws, right? Right? Jesse James, Robin Hood, really nice, fun guys who are great to be around, but they happen to steal. Well, maybe this will help. Lawlessness is utter contempt for law. Laws like do not murder, do not rape, do not steal. When you think of lawlessness, don't stop at that romanticized version. Think more like Charles Manson, Ted Bundy. Think about this guy this last week, sex offender who wore an ankle bracelet as part of his parole, yet all the while he had a young girl in his backyard in the shed. Pretending like everything was good, but it was utter contempt for the law. When you think of lawlessness, think of that. Anyone who tramples on the law. See, lawlessness is saying to the lawmaker, I don't care what you think. I'm going to do what pleases me. I'm going to do what I want to do. Verse 4 says, whoever commits sin shows contempt, utter disregard for the law, and therefore the lawmaker. Let me put it this way, probably the most succinct, if you forgot everything else so far. Sin, all of it, even the little stuff, is man shaking his fist in the face of a holy God. Sin is, if you're taking notes, sin is at its core, rebellion. Sin is at its core, rebellion, defiance. Parents, let me ask you a question. Maybe I'm the only one who's experienced this. I doubt it. You ever tell your son or your daughter, you say, Johnny, don't touch that. And they look at you. They even hold their finger there for a second, like, what you going to do? There's still a, there's a few kids here who are still in the room. Let me talk to you kids real quick. When you do something like that, defiant like that, and you can almost literally see the steam coming out of your parents' ears, right? The reason they have that look on their face is because in you they see lawlessness, rebellion, contempt for this law and therefore the lawmaker. So parents right now, you get lawlessness, right? Makes sense. And it can happen as overtly as that. It's like, yeah, 
Okay, I dare you. Or it can happen more covertly, right? Which is, hey, mom, I'm sorry. I, I didn't hear you say pick up my room those 20 times. Right? It can happen a little more covertly, but it's still lawlessness. It's saying, I don't care what the lawmaker says. I'm going to do what I want to do. Listen, you guys, John wants us to know whenever you and I sin, that's what we're doing to God. It's like we're waving our fist in the face of a holy God and saying, I don't care what you want. I'm going to do it my way. Verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So, sin at its core is rebellion, it's defiance, it's a big deal. Next, sin and the Christ, verse 5. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Question right there is, what is Jesus' view of sin? What's his relationship to sin? I mean, is it a big deal to him? Because you ask a lot of Christians, they'll say, yes, sin's no big deal. What is, what is Jesus' relationship to sin, and is it a big deal? Well, verse 5, to me, says that sin is the very reason Jesus left heaven and humbled himself and became a man and walked the earth And was spit upon and had his beard pulled out and was flogged and was crucified. Verse 5 says, it's the reason he came, it says, to take away our sins. So, yeah, you could say it's a big deal to Jesus. Our sins are the very thing that necessitated his rescue mission on our behalf that had to go Straight through Golgotha. See, verse 5 to me says two things. If you look at the second half, look at there first. Second half says that Jesus is, was, and always will be unblemished by sin. Right? There is no sin in him. Completely unblemished. But the first half says that Jesus, though, is uncompromising with sin. That though there was no sin in his own life to, to account for, he gave it all up. To take away your sin, right? By the way, if there are any unbelievers in the room, and if if you are, I welcome you, and I hope you bring your friends. We want lots of unbelievers to come and hear the message that the Lord is giving out. But if there's if there's unbelievers in the room, please know verse five is basically the gospel, right? He was manifested. That means he was always in existence, but he showed himself on this earth and went through all that he did to take away our sins. And the reason that we can trust that his, that was sufficient was because in him there is no sin. Okay, that's the gospel in a nutshell right there. Now, verse 5 then declares that sin and the Christ are incompatible. That's their relationship. Sin and the Christ are incompatible. They're like oil and water. Jesus hated sin so much and the death that it brings to those he loves that he submitted to this brutal plan of salvation. So sin at its core is rebellion and defiance, but sin and the Christ are incompatible. They are enemies. Sin and our Savior are enemies. 
Next, let's look at sin and the counterfeit Christian. Because if, if Christ and sin are incompatible, doesn't it stand to reason that Christians, that is little Christs, should also be incompatible with sin? We're going to see that anybody who calls himself a Christian but does not find himself incompatible with sin is a counterfeit. But first, we need to clear something up, I think, as we go through these next few verses. Before we go any further, look at verse 6. It says, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, at first glance, when you read that, we have a problem. Because it seems to be saying to the believer, look, after you're converted, if you sin once, you're out. It shows that you never knew Jesus. You are not saved. That's what it looks like it says. And if that's true, we have a huge problem. We have a huge problem in our own experience, and we have a huge problem with other portions of Scripture. We have a huge problem in our experience. How many of you raised your hand when I said you're a sinner? Uh, How many of you sinned this last week? If you read this verse that way, that means all of us, all of you, are going to hell. And if you didn't raise your hand, you're probably going to hell for lying. (laughs) There's a huge problem with our experience if that's what this verse means. But you know what? You could say, you know what? It's not our experience, but it's there. So deal with it. Well, yeah, except that there's, it's also a huge problem with other scriptures. Remember chapter 1, we looked at it, chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, and John is the apostle saying we, right? He says, look, if, if I even say that I have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Then he goes on to chapter 2, verse 1 and says, look, if you sin, we have an advocate, a defense attorney with the father. So he cannot be saying here, look, the occasional sin, you're done for. He cannot be saying that there's this perfect life that we can live after we've been saved. This cannot be talking about the occasional sin. Scholars much smarter than me say that in the ancient Greek, the present tense in these following verses, verses 6 through 10, indicates an ongoing, a habitual, a lifestyle of sin. Okay, Uh, the New International Version actually says no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. See, the idea, follow with me here, is that sin is incompatible with Christ. Right. We've established that. So then more and more shouldn't the Christian find himself incompatible with sin. If you think that this is talking about perfection, then we're all disqualified here. I think what this is saying is, look, an ongoing habitual lifestyle of sin is absolutely incompatible with Christ and with the Christian. A real Christian will find him or herself more and more incompatible with sin. Right. I I think this will help you a lot. It helped me during the rest of our study that when you see this word sin, 
Remember that it refers to this present tense, this continually, habitually. Uh, Let's actually read verse 6, and I'll I'll amplify it, if you will, for you. Whoever abides in him does not sin continually, habitually as a lifestyle. Whoever sins continually, habitually has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He, He who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he is righteous, he who sins continually, habitually as a lifestyle is of the devil. For the devil has sinned continually, habitually from the beginning. For this purpose, the son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin continually, habitually as a lifestyle for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin continually, habitually because he has been born of God. Do you see what he's doing here in these verses? John is exposing the counterfeit Christian. That's our third point. Sin and the counterfeit Christian. Look at with me at verse six. Whoever abides in him does not sin continually, habitually. Whoever sins constantly as a lifestyle, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Here's the point. Jesus is antagonistic towards sin. They're mortal enemies. Sin is antithetical to Jesus. Jesus and sin are incompatible. So any person that tells you, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm just continually, habitually committing fornication. And God's cool with it. Or if someone tells you, look, I'm a Christian and I'm in an ongoing adulterous relationship. Jesus is cool with it. He covered it. Or they say, I'm a Christian and I'm in an active homosexual relationship and God is fine with it. Or they say, I'm a Christian who's habitually drunk or getting high. And it's all good. Jesus covers it. Or they say, I'm a Christian who never forgives. God's good with that. I'm a Christian who never humbles myself before another. God's fine with that. Jesus covers it. It's all good. It's antinomianism. It's presumption. And it's from the devil. Verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not continually habitually sin. Whoever sins continually habitually has neither seen him nor known him. John's point is this. Look, if you have met, if you really met the, the Lord Jesus, it should it will make a difference in your life. Do you guys remember when you were kids and you met your movie star hero or your sports hero? Anybody get a chance to like shake their hand or whatever? And you shake their hand and you're like, I'm never going to watch this again. Because it made an impact on you. How much more should an encounter, a real encounter with the living Christ make an impact? John says, verse 6, Lord, if you've really had an encounter with the living Christ and he is this incompatible with sin, yet he gave his life to, to pay for yours, you will find yourself more and more incompatible with sin. And, and verse 7 and 8, to me, delineates the difference between the children of God and the children of the devil. But the title of the message is Birthmarks, Part 1. Because if you look at verse 10, you see this is a birthmark of the the child of God, this righteousness, this moving forward in righteousness. And another birthmark is a love of the brethren. 
So this is birthmarks part one. Verse seven, he delineates. He's like, this is how you can tell. It's pretty easy. How to tell between the children of God, those who, who actually are redeemed, and those who say they're redeemed, but they're really children of the devil. Verse seven. Little children, let no one deceive you. Don't let anyone fool you on this. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. I love the fact that he said once again, practice. If you were here last Sunday, we talked about this practicing righteousness. It takes us back to chapter 2, verse 29. Look back there real quick. Very, very similar verse. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. How many of you here last Sunday? You remember the discussion about Isaac, uh, my little boy, uh, trying to be like me. Um, basically, he practices guitar. He practices singing. He even practices preaching. Right? He has, uh, some of you might say, I, I like his preaching better. But he may not have arrived as a full-fledged professional musician or whatever, but he's my son and he's practicing righteousness. These verses are saying, look, if you're born of him, it's going to show. You will be, because you're his son, practicing righteousness. You will be more and more incompatible with sin. On the other hand, verse 8 Here's how you find out the children of the devil. He who sins continually, habitually is of the devil. Well, John, don't hold back here. Tell us how you really feel. By the way, we won't go into it today, but you can tell right here that he's speaking of a literal devil. All of the church fathers, all of the New Testament, they they believed in a, a literal devil. But maybe you're looking at this going, whoa, come on. Verse eight, isn't that a little harsh? I mean, I remember it was a couple of years ago I said that prayer thingy. I came forward that one time, you know, when my girl was girlfriend was threatening to leave me. I came forward during that time. And so now I got a relationship with Jesus. He's my homeboy. I just ask him to close his eyes when I do stuff. What's the big deal? Verse eight. He who sins continually habitually is of the devil. For the devil has sinned continually, habitually from the beginning. Let's see if you guys have been paying attention. Real quick, pop quiz. What is sin at its core? Rebellion. Defiance, right? Sin at its core is rebellion and defiance. Listen, you guys. The devil, rebellion, defiance, that's what he does. He lives rebellion. He breathes defiance from the beginning, it says. Turn with me to Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14 tells us of the devil's, the enemy's not so humble beginning. Right? He was at one point a mighty archangel. He was exalted above so many, but apparently it wasn't enough. Scriptures tell us that he led a rebellion of angels, and he became Satan. Look at verse 12, uh, Isaiah 14, 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. That actually means uh, day star, I believe. It's like when you hear Lucifer, and it's not a good, not something you would name your kid today, right? But it it's, was this exalted being. 
How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, notice all the eyes, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mountain of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Y'all, rebellion, defiance, that created being shaking his fist in the face of a holy creator, that goes way back. When you sin continually, habitually, and you shake your fist in the, the face of a holy God, and you continue to do it as though you're, you've never been changed, God says, hey, I've seen that before somewhere. He who sins, verse 8, continually, habitually is of the devil, for the devil has sinned continually, habitually from the beginning. Jesus said it back in the gospel. Gospel of John, you're of your father, and he, he's lied from the very beginning. He doesn't have a single honest bone in his body. Jesus says, I, I, can, I, can, I can point out the ones who are of their father as opposed to those who are of my father. So I don't know if you see it, but when I read these verses, it's like all of history unfolds like a, like a movie, right? It's about individuals in history, us, choosing up sides. Some choose outright rebellion against God, right? The atheists, the ones who are like, whatever. They're easy to identify. And then some choose real surrender to Jesus. And I hope that's everybody in this room. And when they do, they are accepted. Listen, in exactly as they are. But then Jesus begins that process of changing you. They become conformed more and more into his image. Never quick, as quick as we want it to be. But there is that process, that practicing of righteousness. So there's some who choose outright rebellion. There's some who choose real surrender. And then there's this third category. They say they choose Jesus, but in fact, they have no intention of allowing him to change them. Verse seven, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He, he who sins continually, habitually is of the devil for the devil has sinned continually, habitually from the beginning. Now, Look at the last half of verse 8. We come to, if you're taking notes, your outline, Sin and the Christ, part 2. Like the sequel. Sin and the Christ, part 2, look at it. It says, for this person, or excuse me, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. You see that parallel to, I think it's verse 5. It says, he, for, this, for this reason, the, the Son of God was manifested that he might take away sins. But now, he even says a little more... <laughs> Directly, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Y'all, what is sin but the work of the devil? Jesus and the devil are mortal enemies. And Jesus and the works of the devil, that is sin, are mortal enemies. Jesus and the devil are enemies. Genesis chapter 3, we, we saw it from the very beginning. Adam and Eve and the serpent, they're all getting their curses, right? Genesis 3, verse 15, 
God says, and I will, speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Interesting, a woman doesn't normally have seed. Between your seed and her seed, speak, this is speaking of Jesus, and he shall bruise, or actually literally it's crush your head. He shall crush the, uh, the serpent's head. He shall bruise, crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. From the very beginning, the plan has been Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus did not come to give the devil a good talking to. He came to crush his head. And in regards to the works of the devil, sin, I think it's fair to say that Jesus did not come to dilute it. He did not come to so that we could have detente with sin. He did not come that we could have uh, diminished in, uh, interaction with sin. He came to, it says, destroy the works of the devil. Now take that and make it personal to you. Jesus did not come into this world to dilute the sin in you. He didn't come so that you could have detente with the sin in you. He did not come to just diminish the sin in you. His ultimate objective is to destroy it in you. So here's the question. Are you surrendering to that objective? He's on a search and destroy mission. Are you surrendering to it or are you holding back saying, you know what? I've got this little section right here. Which I'm pretty fond of. I just kind of cordoned off, you know, do not disturb Jesus. Our prayer should be, Lord, you're on this search and destroy mission. Destroy it, Lord. Do whatever it takes. Come to think about it, a, a better prayer would be this. Lord, show me how I can help you destroy it. Jesus came to search and destroy the thing that is destroying you. It's sin. Maybe the, the question to him would be, Lord, how do you want me to do this? What thing do you want me to throw away? What relationship do you want me to cut off because it's not pleasing to you? Maybe it's not going near the place where you know you're tempted. Maybe it's getting a filter for your online activities. Jesus talks in the Gospels about performing radical surgery getting rid of whatever you need to get rid of before it destroys you. Maybe this means confessing and having that, we've been talking about it for weeks now, having a prayer partner, having somebody you can confess to, say, you know what, I've blown it again. Making sure that your, your sins are out in the open, not hidden in the dark where they can thrive and grow. So we have seen um, sin at its core, right? We've seen sin and the Christ. We've seen sin and the counterfeit Christian. Let's end with verse 9 and look at sin and the child of God. Verse 9 says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin continually, habitually. For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin continually, habitually. Because he has been born of God. The, the English Standard Version re reads this way. Look, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
You see, it comes back to this, this continuing theme uh, that we began at the last few verses of the last chapter, which is there's this thing about is God my father or is the devil my father? It comes back to a spiritual lineage, having the seed in you. Now, this does not say, and, and I think it's always good to remind ourselves, this does not say that we are supposed to work really hard not to have a lifestyle of sin. No, this is saying it's simple genetic coding, right? If the seed of God abides in you, if there's this new life in you, you cannot abide. Not you should not or, um, you know, you really got to work at not doing it. It says you cannot abide. This will help. What have we learned? What's, what's the word? How do you best explain the word abide? To settle into. Right? To settle into, just relax, get all comfortable. If the seed of God, listen, if the seed of God abides in you, you cannot abide in sin. You put it this way, the true Christian... If you're a true Christian here this morning and you're like, man, this message is really heavy because of you, you know your own life. If you're a true Christian who is backslidden and you have that new nature in you, I mean, you really do. I can tell you without even knowing your story that you are miserable. You are so miserable. Of all souls, you are the most miserable. Think about it. You, you've got too much of the seed of God in you to be happy in the world anymore. You're ruined for the world. But you've got too much of a world in you to be happy as a child of God. You are of all men most miserable. Whoever has been born of God does not sin continually, habitually, for his seed remains in him and he just cannot continually, habitually just abide in sin because he has been born of God. J. Vernon McGee tells a story right here of the prodigal son, and it's just, it's just too perfect. I need to share it with you. He, he points out, look, that the prodigal son was still a son, right? He's living far away from the father. Got himself in quite a mess. He's living with pigs. But he says, look, the difference between the prodigal son and the pigs is the pigs could stay in that slop and be perfectly happy. The son couldn't. He could not abide there. He just couldn't stay. He could not stay continually, habitually in that place where he knew that he did not belong. He couldn't. And the thing that showed who he was whose son he was, was that he couldn't stay there. So what did he do? He returned home. Perhaps the father is whispering your name right now. And it's so faint because you, you've gone so far away from him. I promise you the prodigal son's story is still as true today as it was then. If you'll just come to the, the conclusion, you know what? I don't belong here. If you'll head toward him, you will find him running out to meet you with the best robe and the ring, desiring to throw a party because you've come back. 
If that's you, please do that today. Don't. Don't settle for the slop because you know that's not where you belong. If on the other hand, you're perfectly comfortable. Pray that, that he'll open your eyes. You can still come to him. We're going to see that here in our applications. He loves every single person in this room, whether you know him or not. And if you know him and you said, I've, I've blown it, I, I don't I can't come back because of all that I've done. Don't forget, he's, you're still his son. He desires to to bring you back into fellowship with him. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Even for difficult messages, Lord, because when we hear your heart, Lord, we know that you love us. And we know, Lord, that, that it's true that you love us so much that you're, you want to be honest with us. You want to be real. You want to properly prescribe that which we need. Thank you, Lord, for your saints. Thank you for those whom you've brought. Lord, you know every single heart in this room. You know where we are. There, there may be some who just have never given their hearts or their lives to you. Lord, I pray that you are speaking and that you continue to speak and you would draw them to yourself, Lord. You would convert them, Lord, from death into life today. Lord, there are some who um, who know you, but they they're so feel so far away from you because of the things that they've done, because of the sin. Lord, please speak more to, to them as well. Help them to hear your heart. And Lord, if there's anyone here who is just completely comfortable where they are, Lord, wrestle them, Lord. Help them open their eyes. Help them to see the, the real truth. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.